That's all I had, basically. Still kind of beaming with pride, though. I'm not beaming. I'm glowing. You're glowing. Yeah. 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 It's like when you, you, as a fullback, when you score, you should feel good about yourself. Because it's rare. Because it's rare. As, as is rare. But the it's, it's sometimes just the quality of the finish, which just, again, just it can maybe then, rather than having a day of pride, you can have maybe a week of pride, which is, is what I'm... I'm Are I'm you going to be like for, this for I'm a week? That. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. Although I have marked the diary with another early hours special. <laughs> So it looks like we're getting into a very sexual phase. <laughs> Are things vigorous enough for you to be spared a trip to the gym today? Oh no, that's where my that's where my base level comes from, Steve. <laughs> I you don't have think we to put this out. You have to. I'm, I'm still monitoring it for for decency. You have to. Yeah, you have to feel the burn to then feel that's it this is set piece many the podcast where four friends talk football over (laughs) food i'm hugh ferris joining me are Stephen wife to the left to the left rory smith to the left to the left and andy hinchcliffe (laughs) you're irreplaceable sorry i just dropped my phone on the crumpets (laughs) you dropped the phone on the punchline the food is crumpets the toppings for which have been heavily discussed and hopefully uh, received with joy and pleasure bacon was essentially uh, three ways. Bacon three ways was the uh, the answer that was yeah, given to me. But I, I had no. I had the the savoury crumpet and then the like the pudding crumpet. Even though we're having them early in the day, I felt I needed a main course and a dessert in crumpets. Uh, you, you didn't do bacon three ways. You did bacon one way. No, I did bacon three ways. One way with cheese. One way with maple syrup. One way for Stephen with absolutely nothing else on it. I don't that's still one way. That's one way you grilled no, the bacon. No, no. The three ways is that when you do chicken three ways, it's not the chicken. It's the what goes with the no, chicken. No, it it's very much hang the on, chicken. Hang on. No, you just put no, bacon no. on top of what we had on our. Cr- so you didn't do anything fancy. No, you grilled the bacon ways, and put it on top of three what we had. ways. If you did like bacon confit. Then that yes. would have been one way. Yes. Or, or if you'd actually listened to my request for eggs and maybe done poached for one of us, scrambled offered, for another, and fried for the third, that, that would have been eggs, eggs, three, eggs ways. three ways. I offered you eggs, and you said that you didn't want eggs. I, you I said specifically bacon. put on my on my message eggs. I was offered cheese. When you arrived 20 minutes late, 12 Stephen, minutes late, I said 12, to you, 20. do you want eggs, cheese, bacon, beans, or sweet? And you told me bacon. I said maple syrup, and you vomited in my face. He swallowed the eggs and beans option as he scurried it, up the stairs, empty-handed, been. leaving me to carry all of the equipment. Because it, you were... 12 late. minutes late. Arriving at Hugh's ridiculous upside-down house. Yes. <laughs> the, so the food is crumpets. The football is today. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about? Um, uh, uh, is it the future of world football? No. I don't know then. Today, Chinch, we are talking about charisma. Uh, it, wow. It is now about then. charisma. Is it when all is said and done, the single most important thing in making a good manager good? We've done philosophy versus pragmatism in episode 71 and man management in 117. But really, can any manager succeed if he or she has not got charisma? Chinch, start your prep now. Uh, I'd say Nigel Pearson. Thank you. You can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. And we start with this from Yup Smates, who you may remember has got in touch before. He is from the Netherlands. He has uh, emailed recently to say this. Dear SPM, congrats on the 100th pod. Do you remember? That was our live pod. Very Mm. sorry to have missed it, he says. Hopefully one day, to the benefit of what I assume are your many continental listeners, you might have one this side of the canal. I'm writing because I recently realised that for as much as I had by now heard about the 1995 FA Cup final, I had never actually seen it. So I looked it up on YouTube and discovered an incredible detail that I'm not sure has yet been mentioned. 
While watching a 1 minute 36 seconds long monument to English football's mid-90s greatness, my jaw dropped. Mm. The video consists of the counter-attack that led to the 1-0, a great save by Neville Southall, and the final whistle, at which point the following happens. The first cut from camera one is to a handheld close-up of the jubilant coach, which is entirely logical. Every match director worth his salt has a camera trained on the coach that is about to win at all times, so it is an entirely defendable choice. There appears to be one other player nearby. I can't identify him. It is, yup, Anders Limpar. Mm. But then... The very next shot the match, di match director cuts to, assuming this is the original coverage, which it definitely appears to be, is none other than Andrew Hinchcliffe. Mm -hmm. Now, a match director, says Europe, as you will know, only has a limited number of cameras available. They direct them to make the shots they anticipate to need within the near future, which towards the end of the match will often be those of key players in the game. He says his capitals, a goal scorer, for example, or somebody otherwise inherently relevant to the match. Yes. The fact that not only was there a camera train on a gigantic close-up of Andy Hinchcliffe, but that it was the director's first cut right after the winning coach suggests there might be some truth to Andy's claims that he was, in fact, an mm. absolute key player mm. in what from the highlights appears to have been a rather forgettable mid-90s domestic cup final with kind regards yips mate sometimes we it's not what you do as a player it's what you stop your opponent doing I, I didn't touch the ball during the course of the game which was always my ploy but I stopped Roy Keane affecting the game I basically got in his face and stopped him having an influence so that's why the director clearly understood what had gone on it wasn't about Paul Rydell's goal and all that it was about the fact that I had stopped the Wild Irishman. I think we can all agree it was about Graham Stewart's miss. Uh, this, on the other hand, comes from Matthew Plunkett in LA. Dear Andy, Stephen, Hugh and Rory, I always enjoy the pod. Please keep up the good work. Two quick observations. Number one, I don't mean to bring up your competitor, but the Football Daily's most recent episode of their Greatest Game series featured Marcus Speller and Jonathan Wilson speaking with the author James Corbett. Now, Corbett's game of choice was... Everton against Wimbledon in the last game of the 93-94 season. Mm -hmm. You may remember that Everton saved themselves from relegation. I think there was a Barry Horn screamer in that game. Now, four, more than 40 minutes of a conversation fe featuring both a lifelong Everton supporter and indeed Mr. Wilson, whose penchant for unnecessary detail is well known. And yet there is one player's name who Fair. is never mentioned. Not once. Literally never they find plenty of time to discuss renovations at Goodison Park, match fixing, Neville Southall's perfect record scoring for the penalty spot, but Andy Hinchcliffe's name remains conspicuously absent. A quick Google search tells me there's a reason for that. Hinchcliffe was not included in the game day squad. I don't need a second search to tell me the cause was likely one or both of his knees. So a question to Andy. <laughs> if he were fit, would the result have changed? Would his presence in the lineup have assured an easy win or indeed guaranteed relegation? My contribution to any football match is minimal. That day, I was at Bramall Lane playing for Everton Reserves. I must have told this story about no. against Sheffield United. Uh, Chris Kamara was playing for Sheffield United. I'm sure Sheffield United went down and Everton stayed up on that day. So we were playing, strangely. Under Dave Bassett. And we were, after, after our reserve game finished, mm. it looked like Sheffield United were going to stay up and Everton were going to go down. And then in, crazy, in the crazy world of football, it flipped. But if I'd have played in that game... Yeah, but that was the... Um, is it Hans Sager? Who's the goalkeeper? The Wimbledon goalkeeper. There was rumours about certain things... Well, they talk about there. it, about the match fixing. But there was... Yeah. Uh, was it 4-3? It 3-2. 3-2. But, yeah, I was playing... But it, it was Howard, Howard Kendall. Did Wimbledon go down? Kendall. 
No, no, Sheffield United. No, Sheffield United. United. Chelsea, were they at Chelsea that day? I'm sure they'd lost. But that, oh, that's what happened anyway, because we were strangely playing at, at Sheffield United. So Cammy and I are great colleagues now. Great friends, great friends. I, I don't know where he lives. Um, <laughs> but we, we, well, we, Everton have stayed up. Ha ha, you've got relegated. Bantam. But then how things turned around for me and how instrumental I became in... What Everton are today, which is an average mid-table team. <laughs> Cap, did, you, did you say Cammy, football? Unbelievable. Unbelievable Cammy, <laughs> I said, yes. I've, I've heard that's where he got it from. Yes, I think yeah. that was the, the very, very origin. I gave it to him as well, so I should sue him. Uh, you might remember Matthew had two observations. The second is as follows. Number two, he says, literary readings. If you are seeking a respite from Reacher, I thought it worth pointing you in the Literary Reviews Bad Sex in Fiction Awards. As the website states, since 1993, the Bad Sex in Fiction Award has honoured the year's most outstandingly awful scene of sexual description in an otherwise good novel. Funnily enough, we have combined the two because Lee Child has previously won the award for a passage in a Reacher novel. Mm-hmm. Matthew, however, offers up a different sample, which Chinch is now going to uh, read. Okay, this is this, this is, is, so this is this is sort of not Reacher. This is not Reacher. Right. This is an example of a winner of the I, Bad I Sex in Fiction Award, which I has been uh, produced by the Literary Review since 1993. And I'm not keen on the respite from Reacher. No one in the world should be have respite from Reacher because he should be front and centre in all our thoughts. Right, so this is it's very short. He was filling, so A bit like my love making. <laughs> Actually, no, no, it's, it's improving every year. Uh, okay, so this is, this is Lee Child, is it right? No, it's not Lee Child. Oh, it's not it's Lee Child. Else. The actual lovemaking was a series of cryptic clues and concealed pleasures. Essential treasure hunt. She asked for something, then changed her mind. He made adjustments and calibrations, awaited further instruction. (laughs) Who's making... Is that an engineer making love? What the hell is that? Uh, Now to a couple of uh, quick responses to our most recent pod about the media treatment of Manchester City and Liverpool and why it is considered different. James Brennan has emailed saying, Hi Hugh and those other chaps. Good start. Mm. I am, in the words of Bart Simpson, a long-time listener, first-time caller, having just tuned in to SPM 161 on the way to work this morning. And I felt that there was one important point missed when discussing the reaction to City fans uh, to the uh, reaction of City fans to the media coverage. As a long-suffering City fan myself, not sure whether this now needs updating, uh, I had become accustomed to the mockery from mates who were fans of United, Liverpool, et al., and usually being the second favourite club of a large number of fans across the country. While this did change when the money arrived, there was still a lot of romance attached to the first title win, particularly with the incredibly dramatic nature of the final moments. I think that a lot of the bad feeling from City fans comes from the fact that we still feel that we are that underdog club, the fans' favourite, and we haven't really come to terms with the fact that we are now, unfortunately, the footballing equivalent of the Death Star. Liverpool, both last season and this, are the Hollywood story, so I can fully understand that they would be the more interesting winners from the media's perspective, as was the case with Leicester in 2016 Mm -hmm. and City in 2012. Ultimately, I think the culture shift will settle in that City fans will adopt the Millwall perspective of nobody likes us and we don't care. However, during this period of adjustment, the general sense of unfairness will continue. Huge fan of the pod, says James. Keep up the good work. That's Jimbo, exiled in deepest, darkest Wales. That, um, that's a really good point. And I think that's the way that, the, um, that, that fans perceive their club is often at odds with the way that they're perceived outside. And there is quite, quite often a, a sort of jarring there that we, that we maybe, as the media, don't necessarily take not not take into account but kind of give as much weight to as we ought to because I think City fans do do often struggle with the idea that they are not they might not be the neutrals favourite it's uh, funny enough in, 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 in that one respect they probably need to be grateful that their um, that their opponents over the last couple of years have been Liverpool who are definitely not the neutrals favourites 
No, oh. no one says Liverpool are their second favourite team. I know City fans, some of whom would admit this, some of whom pretend it's not the case, who miss the old days yeah. a little bit. They miss that sense of identity they got from supporting Manchester City rather than Manchester United. And the fact that the tables have turned a little bit, obviously they enjoy the success, but their, their raison d'etre has been extinguished. And, and I think there are some who would quite like to go back to that. I'm sure we've talked about that before, though, the kind of... The slight, uh, it's not, maybe not a crisis, and obviously there's, as Steve says, there's like rewards for it, but the kind of, the shift in identity of Man City. So if you grow up thinking you, you support the underdog, it must be really hard to get used to the idea that you're, you're the overdog. Like City are, and it's funny, again, and we talked about it at sort of at the institutional level last week, but City at the institutional level still think they're the kind of insurgent force. They're really not. They're part of the the established elite, and that's 10 years. But the newer City fans, they'll just be used to this success, so that's the club that they're supporting now. They won't have the, the yeah, recollection of the how it used to be. I, th- I, w- I do wonder whether they might pick up... So I think for, for older fans who've been there through, through, through the change, effectively, the, the Manchester City menopause, if you will. Um, <laughs> the hot yeah. flush. The hot flush. Puberty. They've been weathered by the footballing hot flush. The, yes. Fl- yes. the hot flush yes. of cash. The, um, <laughs> I, was, the, um, I wonder whether they... Like, I think that their, their kind of resentment's probably... Or, or their difficulty with, with that switch is, is understandable because you, it's really hard. And the parallel with the 2012 title win is one that I've never made, but is really relevant. Does that year... City were the better story. So they got loads of credit because they were the better story. 2014, when Liverpool didn't win it and City did, City didn't get as much credit because they weren't the better story. It is as simple as Mm -hmm. that. um, But the the fans who've lived through that switch and remember those, what City used to be, you can understand their resentment. But I think there's also an element where those kind of emotions among a fan base are catching effectively. So new fans who will only really have, you know, 10 years is quite a long time. There'll be fans, Man City fans who are getting on for 20 now who don't remember what it was like no. before. Yeah. And possibly even older, 2008 was the takeover. Mm. Yeah, you need, you need a generational shift further because yeah. this generation of new fans will be told the stories by the previous generation. Yeah. And so you need the, the, the two generations basically between the success and not success. And also to be the insurgent force or the underdog throughout your supporting life gives you that emotional insurance so that if things yeah. go wrong, you can brand it typical city and you feel better about it yeah. mm-hmm. because that kind of uh, reasserts the identity that the club ha- club have. If you take that emotional insurance away when things don't go your way because you are considered to be a team that has to win all the time, you don't have that insurance anymore. And so you, you cast adrift emotionally. You just feel bad and you lash out and you might want to, to scapegoat somebody or a group of people. The other thing that's vaguely sort of tangentially relevant is I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about Barcelona sacking Ernesto Valverde. And we will talk about that in this very podcast. Yeah, you're good. Uh, but... I'm going to talk about it now. And someone, <laughs> when Structure, I, hang the structure. When, but no, when I, when I tweeted the link to it, one of the responses I got was that the, um, the most kind of volatile fans in terms of demanding not only success, but that sort of archetypal Barcelona style to the level of the Guardiola team of 2008-2012, someone, a Barcelona fan said to me, the people who, who are most sort of aggressive in pursuing that are the newer fans because that's what they expect. They don't understand, you know, if you've, if you fell in love with Barcelona in 2009 or 2011 when they were by some distance the best team in the world and this byword for sophistication and you see Ernesto Valverde's team, you're going to be really angry. Whereas if you maybe remember some of the slightly crapper versions yeah. of Barcelona from 10, 15 years ago, not, well, not 10 years ago, 15, yeah. 20 years ago, 
then you might have a little bit more perspective. And I, I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And there'd be a tendency, I think, amongst British fans and match-going fans to say, to say basically that it's foreigners or fans in, in the Far East, in the, the US, where, who, who kind of don't have that same sense of suffering to be a supporter. I think that's really, dis I think that's, that's really disrespectful, borderline racist. Uh, and I wonder whether it's just, a, it might just be an age thing. Maybe when you're a teenager, you lash out more. Uh, I mentioned there were two um, emails about last week, so very briefly, Buffalo John Wood has got in touch. Uh, Hello, SPM. I wanted to comment on the most recent pod. I can actually understand why City fans feel that their achievements are not being as positively represented by the media as Liverpool's success, and I think this is for several reasons. One, that Pep Guardiola is currently one of the best managers in the world. Their success seemed inevitable when he arrived. It was a matter of if not when. Maybe if City had gone a few years under Pep before winning the league, the media narrative would have been different. Number two, last season people had become numb to City's dominance. For a professional journalist, it's far more interesting to look at the so close yet so far narrative rather than mm -hmm. City win again which is something we just discussed and number three City should in theory be the more romantic story coming from the lower leagues to being one of the best teams in Europe which <laughs> is a bit of a bit of a burn uh, but that narrative will always become with the caveat of success being bought also it has been bought with money from state with questionable human rights record it may be more difficult to write an overtly positive narrative uh, without this being a factor keep up the great work John yeah I think that's a good point and I think you know Pep Guardiola was obviously the final piece of the jigsaw in terms of Manchester City's success whereas for Liverpool there were no guarantees with Jurgen Klopp so that adds another layer of intrigue to what they've achieved but the other thing is that you quite often you, so I always think you get this might lead us into our subject today you kind of get players teams and managers teams and often if you have an iconic player so you think about Liverpool's 2005 Champions League win that was initially dressed up very much as Steven Gerrard's victory as a kind of and even if it, in, in, in the years that followed it became you, you started hearing those stories about how, how Gerrard actually gave the half-time team talk and Carragher made the tactical changes and I don't know John Arnarisa was the masseur or whatever and that was very much a players team the Chelsea team that got to the 2008 Champions League final under Avram Grant in a much more legitimate way was seen as a players team Guardiola is, only has managers teams Messi was a little bit different at, um, at Barcelona. Just, you, you couldn't kind of deny or ignore the brilliance of Messi. But certainly at Bayern and at City, their successes are his successes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the credit, and I, this may be something that, that I didn't take into, into account in my argument in, in the initial episode. If you look at the coverage of Guardiola, it is basically fawning. Guardiola gets away with, with a lot in terms of what he says. He's occasionally criticised for things like the, the human rights stuff like Catalonia and Abu Dhabi, which was a, a problem he should have seen coming and should have got his, his ducks in a row to talk about. He should have, he's bright enough to think, hang on, I think this is about Catalonia, but don't think this is about Abu Dhabi. That, is not, that doesn't add up. I need to have a, a way out of that conversation. Um, but Guardiola's the only man who can lose a game in Europe and, and, is, and be told he's done it because he's too clever. That doesn't apply to any other manager. Mm -hmm. That if, if they get knocked out, if City, City or Bayern get knocked out, it's because Guardiola's overthought it. That, that genuinely is not applied to any other manager. And I wonder whether with City, a, li a little bit of it is maybe that there's lots and lots of praise for Pep rather than the club. And that maybe f means that fans don't see praise for the team or for the, the club or the project or whatever. They see a lot of praise for the manager, which obviously they'll, they'll enjoy, but they still that doesn't sate their desire to see positive coverage of other aspects of Vesitor. Uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. So then, today, Chinch, we are talking about... Charisma. Is it actually the managerial Jenga piece? Without it, 
does everything else fall down? Can you be a tactical genius or a man management guru, but not a success if you haven't got that little sprinkling of magic dust that allows you to both lead and inspire your team to greatness? Charisma. Is it what makes all good managers good? So let's flip back. Should we start with Pep Guardiola and talk about the elements of his managerial prowess that would they would he succeed if he wasn't also a, at least a, wasn't also considered to be a charismatic leader of men seeing as this is my suggestion and i've also talked a lot already on this podcast and that's not that's not remains continues to be the case can i just explain where this kind of came from of course you can really quickly so and then i will steal it and make it sound like i came up i was thinking i did the radio uh, on the other night and we talked a lot about managers and kind of what what kind of makes different managers successful and with Chris Sutton and Ian Wright, two of the great thinkers in the modern game. Well, Ian Wright is one and Chris Sutton is there. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, and it just struck me that if you, no matter what level you look at, whether it's Guardiola or Klopp or, or Nigel Pearson at Watford, mm-hmm. the thing that, you, that unifies them, all these different, they all have different tactics, they all have different approaches, they all have different strengths, different, we- different weaknesses. But what unifies them is they have a charisma. So Klopp is, a, Klopp is very obviously a charismatic person. If you spend any time in his company, Klopp, Jürgen Klopp has what most people in normal life would refer to as charisma. In a way that Guardiola, to be honest, doesn't. And from what you're saying about Pearson, he's probably not that. I've, I've not seen Pearson for a long time, so I can't quite remember. But I don't remember him, him being a kind of naturally charismatic person. Mm-hmm. But in a management sense, I think what they all have is that charisma to take people with them, to, buy, to get people's faith, to, to buy them time, to buy them understanding, to get people to buy into what they're doing. And I think you can acquire that charisma in football in lots of different ways in management. One is by having it, like Klopp. One is, it, one is by the, uh, the, the, your, your record and reputation initially as a player and then later as a manager, so Guardiola. So when Guardiola took over at Barca B, you listened to him because he was Pep Guardiola. And then as soon as he won the European Cup, you listen to him because he's Pep Guardiola, world's greatest manager, not so much Pep Pep Guardiola, brilliant midfielder, but the charisma maintains. You can get it like Mourinho had through winning trophies as a manager by building up that sort of sense that people will listen to you. And with with Pearson, who's had to work his way up the levels, lots of different jobs, he took a number of minor clubs like Southampton Mm -hmm. and, and places like that. But because he's got that background of the greatest shape with Leicester, the, the sense that he, in some way, laid the foundations for the title yeah, in 2016. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that he goes into Watford and he has a charisma based on this man can get us out of this. The logical extension of that, and my final sentence for the rest of the podcast, I'm going to go, was that what happens to explain managers who are, one season, brilliant, look like they could come to the world, the next season, it starts to all fall apart is when the players see a chink in the charisma, when mm-hmm. they start to see, hang on, charisma is basically something that dazzles you. As soon as its effects wear off, as soon as it stops dazzling you, you kind of see what's behind the, the screen. And I think that is when managers have problems and get sacked. And I think that the, the mark of the great managers is that they continue to find a way to make the charisma work, whether it's through changing their own methods or through the power of their own personality, or most often through changing the players who they're working the charisma on. And that is now that, that has become over the last week my theory of management. I'm going to write a self-help book about it. And it has to be genuine and well-founded. You can't be, you can't be an imitation of Jurgen Klopp. That will only last so long. Yeah. And I, I do feel maybe a lot of the younger coaches are looking at 
Klopp and and Guardiola and feeling that is how I have to behave. But is that actually you? And there are, it's like charisma. You think is it all about being bubbly and putting your arms? It's not. You're absolutely right. Nigel Pearson, in terms of what he's done at Watford, that could still be termed as as charisma. Is the ability to communicate with players, pass the responsibility, and get a reaction from those players to play for you. And people say, well, Nigel Pearson isn't Guardiola. He's not like Klopp. But that he still has the charisma to be able to pull people along with him. Yeah. So again, yeah. When, when we, we said we we're going to be talking about this, I thought, it, it, is it just? Is that it? If you don't, if you're not that, but when we said you haven't got the ability to pull people along with you, twenty minutes ago for the first time when you. Yeah, but I, I played along with things. I didn't know what we were going to I knew, I've put a lot of thought into this in the last 15 minutes. And, um, but I think with, with, with Pearson, what it is, is that, so Javid Rassi is a good manager. They had a, Watford had a good season under Javid Rassi last year, and then, then it kind of tailed off and they got smashed in the cup final. And clearly, by the time they came back, whatever hold he'd had on the players had broken. So they have this disastrous start to the season. They then get Tite Sanchez-Flores in, who can't establish. And the, you speak to the players, the players quite liked Tite Sanchez-Flores. By all accounts, he is a lovely man. But he didn't have the respect mm-hmm. of the players. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow him. Pearson goes in and immediately... Not j- ben Foster explain, explains it as he's kind of... He's made all these small changes so that discipline's back and we know that we, we can't get away with anything and he's very school teacherly, which I, I buy to some extent. Yeah. But I think the main thing is that, they've drawn, that he's gone in and basically said to the players, I've done this before, do what I say, you'll get out of this. And the players have gone, yeah, all right. That's happened before, surely. That, that has happened before. In the, if, if you talk about the difference in char- the, the two charismatic managers in that right at the top of the league, you've got Jurgen Klopp, who is, as you say, naturally charismatic yeah. effervescent thousand watt smile all that and pep who is charismatic by reputation by delivering because yeah. he must be charismatic enough in terms of how he delivers his messages to the players for them to not go oh this and i, and I know that the chink in the charisma might come when they go oh, it's been he's been banging on about this for ages and it, you know i'm just tired of it we'll come on to how the hold on players relaxes somewhat and f- why and the different reasons that is in just a moment but you 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 cannot say that Jurgen Klopp and and Pep Guardiola aren't charismatic they have different ways of being charismatic but they if the charisma Rory is to essentially get the players on side and to lead them and to lead them so that they are convinced by the journey on which they are going which is important because you need buy-in you see all team sports incredibly important it may last for for a year it may last for 20 you need that hold on those players you need to understand the relationship between those players and the manager and it's not just man management it's not just tactics it has to be that special intangible magic dust that links those two together or links the players to the management staff but Nigel Pearson is charismatic for a different reason and does he not highlight the the kind of the more old-fashioned charisma that we grew up understanding about a manager at football clubs where you are, whether it's through discipline mm-hmm. or whether it's through what you had at Everton uh, at Manchester City briefly, Chinch, Howard Kendall, mm-hmm. who was able, he was incredibly charismatic, yeah. but in a completely old-fashioned way. Now, I'm not saying that Nigel Pearson takes everybody out and gets them drunk uh, and gives them a crate of beer, the morning after they've, mm-hmm. they've lost an important game mm-hmm. but it's, it is, is it not forged in the same crucible? The, the big difference I f- yes Howard Kendall was more charismatic when, when you sat with him in his presence but there wasn't anything off, off the back of that if you're talking about the structure of a team or tactics which ultimately then the players 
now I think they're looking at it a lot more than we ever did back then. If Howard Kendall, Howard Kendall said something, we just listened to it because the success he'd had in the past. But that's the but point. Nigel, like- what Nigel Pearson's done has gone and, and, and has kind of put a rocket up the dressing room and passed responsibility, but then he's put a plan in place and said, this is how we're going to play it. So the players are going, this guy's come in, he's treating us like grown men, but also then there's a, a plan on how we're going to do it and how we're going to train and how I'm going to get the best out of you. So the players then, I think, fall for it doubly. They, they like the guy coming in and being very different from what they've had previously, but there's a tactical plan and there has been a tactical plan that he's put. The change in Watford is incredible within the space of five or six days and it, it, a lot of it is down to the tactics. Everyone just thinks it's about this kind of tub-thumping guy who's gone in there and told them a few home truths. Yes, he's done that, but then he's put a plan in place afterwards. How, Howard didn't really have a, a plan. Colin Harvey was the coach who went off and did all the coaching on the field. Howard was the guy at the Chinese meals. He was the guy doing the team talks. And that's where his charisma came across. He didn't then go out into the training pitch and put a plan in place. That's the big difference between someone like Howard Kendall and Nigel Pearson. But, but Howard Kendall was successful. And I, I really we... went on the phone. When, when Joe and Willie came to Everton, I was really taken on, on how they treated you like a grown man. But then the work they put in physically and tactically... I, I was completely sold on the, the whole thing. The, the point I'm trying to make is that Howard Kendall was successful. If we're trying to draw a line between charisma and success... Howard Kendall was successful almost entirely because of his charisma. Yes. So you've got lots of different ways of, as I say, building that bridge between the playing squad and the management staff or the manager himself. And that bridge is built on strong foundations if, as Rory says, it is a bridge of charisma. That sounds like a Lee Child. But also I think with, with Howard, he brought certain people in like Peter Reid and Andy Gray, who are very strong individuals. That certainly helps that you don't necessarily need to guide them because they're basically self regulated If you look at that team that Howard Kendall had and that the skill was bringing in the right people to get the balance right. So he didn't have to do a lot of tactical work with them. They basically seemed to know what they were doing. Trevor Stephen, Pat Van Den Howe, Neville Southall. Every one of them were, were very strong individuals and brilliant players as well. So it's probably different now that you don't assemble a team like that anymore that really is responsible for itself. So that's why it was the perfect combination. How is charisma basically keeping everyone together and then just letting them loose and letting them play because they knew what they were doing? Nigel Pearson's not done that. You can't do that, I don't think, well, with, I th- with, a, with a modern th- football you team. You probably can't, but I wonder whether if there's one that you could do with, it's Watford, where Troy Deeney yes. and Ben Foster... yes. Uh, and there'll be one or two others. You wonder whether someone like Craig Cathcart might, might be a little bit like that. He's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Man United. Kakure's another. Kakure's talk very. Kakure's talk again about the simplicity, but yeah, about yeah. we actually know what we're doing and we've been told the responsibility. So again, that's the way to handle. But Nigel, I think, has always done that, and that's why he's had the success. And he's able to save it. He gets a response, but it's not just from getting them around the, around the neck and, and forcing them. He's actually saying, this is what we're going to do. Responsibility is yours. This is how we're going to do it. And then the players think, this guy clearly has got the lot. But he's not one of those who's running around the pitch like Jurgen Klopp with the big smart. He gets the job done in mm. different ways. Uh, Gerard Delafeo is a player who has stepped up under, oh, under Pearson. Unbelievable. Which, which you wouldn't necessarily think he's the kind of player that would respond to that approach. I, I'm just wondering whether charisma is the, the right word for, for Nigel Pearson in that... Having interviewed him, having been in his presence in press conferences, that's not necessarily what comes across. It's more that sort of that determination, that single-mindedness, authority. the authority that he's got. And you can see that he has got those leadership qualities. That uh, you know whether whether or not it's the the sort of charisma that Jurgen Klopp has got that you would follow, or whether you would follow him because of the the belief that he has is infectious. That seems to me more to be the kind of characteristics he's got and, and why he's managed to galvanise Watford in those ways. In that. Sometimes you can attach attributes yeah. to, to people 
retrospectively. Do you want a definition of charisma? Well, I've already got one, thanks. Oh, do you want to do, you want to do no, yours? No, no, you, no, 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 you, Compelling you're, you're attractiveness the man. or charm that can inspire devotion in others. So that comes in many... People just see charisma as Jurgen Klopp, I presume. Is that what most people will see Possibly as a charismatic so. coach? The point we're what... trying to make is that there are lots of different yeah. ways of being charismatic. Yes. Yeah. You can be charismatic Yours is very low-key, isn't it? Exactly. Very, I, very low-key. I low do key. not tra- transmit charisma in any way. That is clear to all. But there is yeah. there's there's no, there's, strength to you, though, isn't there? There's no attractiveness or charm involved. Is it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or no, in, no devotion. I, or, I, I or inspiration. Or others. There are no others for whom to be charismatic with. That's but, the crucial yes, point. We are that, trying to make there the point, are lots of different ways of being yes, charismatic, yes, yes, and it yes. is not just distilling down to Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. There are those who are charismatic by not being in 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 public, or at least, or that outward pers- personality charismatic. So I would agree with Steve that that perhaps in some cases it's not quite the right word, but I, <coughs> but I would also, I, to me, you can fold all of these things in to a charisma. Not if yeah. you, if you accept that charisma is not just kind of a a single definition where you know this is this person is apparently uh, general Kasim Soleimani was incredibly charismatic <laughs> if he walks into a room you kind of you everyone's eyes were drawn to Kasim Soleimani and i'm sure he was or maybe he'd had a lot of military victories and that built his charisma up so suddenly charisma through authority and achievement which i think yeah. is what we with authority Nigel Pearson achievement Pep Guardiola yeah. and many others yeah Guardiola's I you're, you're struggling with the, the, my definition of Guardiola's charisma. No, no, no. I, I think Guardiola's charisma is more powerful than Klopp's because it's built in... It's a, Guardiola's an awkward person to spend time with. He is, he is not in the... In, you spend time with Klopp, you think, you know, I could... Not, I don't think I'd run through brick walls for you. That's go to Nando's with him, maybe. But I would, I would really yeah. like to go to Nando's with, with you, sort mm. of. Um, I wouldn't have a half chicken. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be there for that long. Would you like to spearhead his high press? Is that what we're no, saying? Here? You wouldn't like to that do that. That looks like a lot of hard work. It is hard work. Yeah. yeah. The, whereas Guardiola is a much more awkward person. Basically, he's a slightly, slightly fidgety. He's a bit nerdy. He's a bit obsessive. He's he's not got that relaxed sort of easy charm that Klopp does. Yeah, he's not so good with making conversation with strangers. No. Whereas Jurgen Klopp put him in room with anybody you could imagine that he yeah. would happily chat. But Guardiola's charisma, I think, is more potent because his reputation is so lofty. So I think to most players, they would think this guy is basically a guarantee that I'm going to get better. Mm. In the same way as Pearson, who is, who is not a particularly charismatic character, in, this, in the traditional sense... I think players look at Pearson and think this guy can sort. He, th- this guy can sort the others who aren't trying hard enough out. He will. He won't stand for any any nonsense, and he's done it before. So we will listen to him, and that is a. F- it's authority. Maybe in that case applies slightly more directly, but I think all of them are forms of charisma. And, and is part of the skill of the manager who may or may not have natural charisma to to keep that that mask in place. Yeah. In, and I don't mean mask in a, in a negative way, but it's it's clearly a, a front that enables them to either disguise or keep under wrap other characteristics that make them successful. And that part of the reason, as you were discussing earlier, that when people start, that when that charisma slips is when perhaps their success ebbs away as well, that when people start to see through that mask or, or the mask drops away, Jose Mourinho, for example, and you start to see other things about their character which maybe are not so commendable, that's when things start to go off the rails. Or, for example, maybe if that that mask hasn't necessarily slipped but is no longer having the effect it once was. Guardiola at Bayern, very successful in the Bundesliga, won the title in each of his three years there, but that all-encompassing approach, that, that control that he wanted to have was 
did not fit with the philosophy of the club and therefore it was never going to be a relationship that that extended beyond its initial three-year tenure. And a similar thing with Jurgen Klopp. I mean, mm-hmm. most people, most football observers in England, like Jurgen, Jurgen Klopp, they enjoy being in his company and he always seems to be a good fit for the Premier League. But in his latter days at Borussia Dortmund, you would not have got that impression from the German press who perhaps had become a, maybe a little bit tired of that. So when, when people in the English press were saying, we'd love to have this guy in the Premier League, the German press weren't quite so convinced that that was, that was necessarily the, the right thing for us. And we'll come on to the, the mass slipping uh, in just a second, but to, to finish the, the Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola comparison uh, off in terms of the charisma that they have, one is much more external, one the other is internal in terms of the, the boundaries of the club. So Jurgen Klopp, and this is part of the reason why Liverpool are perceived to have better media attention, is that Jurgen Klopp seems outwardly to be charismatic with the press. Mm. Um, and you, not the Gagan press, but the British press. <laughs> so you, you, you have this situation where he's, he's on Sky Sports News and you see him smiling and that has some sort of latent effect, I would imagine, on, on those in the room, but also those people yeah. engaging with it. Whereas Pep is notably, as you have said, uh, Roy, I think the word was arsey yeah. uh, with the press. And so that doesn't necessarily help him, but he doesn't care because his charisma is all internal and his relationship with the players that he gets to perform his exceptional levels of football. But Klopp has both but he sees value in the external charisma as well because he understands that not only does it help him brand Klopp, but it helps Liverpool uh, be liked somewhat more than they might have been otherwise. Pep obviously doesn't care about that, although maybe he should have he done did, because but, but also he they are now he, finding that there's a hashtag agenda against them. He doesn't care about it until he gets annoyed with the fact that that people aren't as nice. He said, and he doesn't see his own role yeah, in he creating doesn't, he that. Totally. And that actually, I could. It's, that's a whole different subject. But he, that thing he said about being hated well maybe if you maybe if you were nicer to the and this is journalistic on high horse I'm conscious of that if you the only way that you readily contact connect with your public is really going to be through through the media you might connect with direct directly with Man City fans through their social media channels and they will project you in a naturally but, but positive light really do that but he doesn't much. do that a huge amount either so the, the way you're going to connect with the general public is through the media that is literally why we're there there is value to it that, so you, if if you're not nice, if you not not if you're not nice to us, but if you create a, a bad impression, then don't be surprised that you're not popular. And if you don't care about that, that's fine. But the one thing I think we should probably get away from Klopp and Pep. So let's have a someone who's a um, a mix of the two. Let's talk about Thomas Tuchel. Right, yes. so Thomas Tuchel, Sean Dyche. You speak. We're to going to come on to Sean Dyche oh, wait, with, with, with somebody shortly. So we'll, but we'll do to Thomas Tuchel, and then we'll, then we'll think about those those uh, managers who haven't necessarily been uh, at the very top of the game, nor have they been failures, but they sit where they are and they succeed consistently because perhaps of charisma. But let's but start with t- Thomas Tuchel. Tuchel is the opposite to that. So Tuchel is, by all accounts, an incredible coach. He's a really kind of innovative, bright, sort of fast-talking, intense kind of football genius effectively who kind of does all these incredible kind of different new new exercises he's got these amazing ideas for how teams can play can solve any problem Tuchel's never won a major trophy he did well at Mainz he did fine at Dortmund um, and oh no he has won a major trophy he's won the lead with PSG but you know it's the lead with PSG and he's got the PSG job now at Dortmund it got to the stage where the, the players basically didn't talk to him anymore. The, the relationship had completely broken down. At PSG, by all accounts, although he'll win the league two years out of two, they might yet win the Champions League, who knows. 
He's kind of done fine. He's done as well as you can do without winning the Champions League at PSG. Tuchel doesn't have... Tuchel is like Guardiola in the sense that he, he isn't naturally charismatic in the way that traditionally we think of charisma. But he's unlike Guardiola in the sense that he doesn't have the, the body of work to say, follow me. Neymar, I've won all of this stuff, so you have to take up these counter-pressing positions. Neymar doesn't want to take up counter-pressing positions because he's Neymar and he doesn't see why he should why this like nerdy German guy gets to tell him where to stand on a football pitch. Although who who Neymar would consider important enough to do that might be a, is different a very question. good question, <laughs> yes. The so the um the problem for Tuchel is that he's an extraordinarily good coach, but without any of those forms of charisma, which I think he's probably lacking until he wins a major trophy, there is a limit to how far he can go. With players like that, perhaps, if he were to attempt yeah. to do that with players who are more bought in because they don't necessarily have massive egos like Neymar, there might be a, or, a stronger foundation for that bridge to build between the two. Or if Thomas Tuchel left PSG in the summer, which I think he probably will, I think he'll go to Bayern Munich, but let's just say he goes to, I don't know, Norwich. Now, the Norwich That would be a coup. That would be a real coup. I'd be upset for Daniel Farker, a bit harsh. All right, not Norwich. Let's say he goes to Ver- all right. Let's say in the summer, Thomas Tuchel goes to Werder Bremen. Werder Bremen survive in the Bundesliga. They're 17th at the moment. My second German team, Werder Bremen. I'm a bit worried, but they're doing better than Kaiserslautern. Kaiserslautern middle mid table in the third tier. It's outrageous. The, um, so let's say Bremen survive. In fact, sod it. Let's say Thomas Tuchel goes to Kaiserslautern. <laughs> right. This is, this is a long road down which we are walking. <laughs> this, is a pe- this is a peak behind uh, the, my, the reasons managers get linked with yeah. many different jobs in the newspapers. <laughs> the journalists can't make up their mind where they're going. So Tuchel goes to Kaiserslautern. <laughs> the players at Kaiserslautern would find that Tuchel was charismatic because of what he had achieved relative to what they've achieved. At the top level, so for PSG or Dortmund at Bayern, I think he struggles a little bit because the, play- the players are a bit like, well, you're not kind of a natural leader of men in that sense, but also you haven't won enough for us to automatically assume that you are right and that that is the problem that managers like that have and it's why when you get really promising young managers they often seem to hit that ceiling it'll be interesting to see whether the same thing happens with Nardelsman that Nardelsman done brilliantly but if he t- takes a really 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 big job before he's won a trophy or got to a Champions League final or semi-final or whatever then the players might say well actually yeah I like your ideas but we don't have any empir- empirical evidence that, that they work. We've spoken before about the journey of young managers to be managers at top clubs. Sometimes they get over-promoted and it's difficult, but sometimes it's incredibly difficult to, over- to overcome that no-man's land between success relative and then success at the top level. So has Jose Mourinho's charismatic pull changed? It's now all based on what he's won. When he was, when he was at Porto, to start with, was he a different type of... Because clearly he was trying to make his way. Now yeah, he's made his way. Is is the jobs that he takes and how he convinces players to play for him? <clears throat> is it all based on look at my CV and look at what I've won? So he's had to change in many ways. When he was there with a the flapping raincoat with with Porto, he was a different type of charisma that he was exerting on his players back then to what he actually does to the Tottenham players now. So you have to adapt maybe as a coach. He's- his personality—it was his personality then yeah. that was charismatic. I remember, you know, that sprinting down the touchline yeah. at Old Trafford, both before and after that game. He was excellent with the press. He, he was, spoke yeah, to yeah. everybody. He agreed to all interview requests. He was personable. He was friendly. What a and, job! And, well, exactly. But, but he's building where, himself up to be, yeah, and then where, the success comes, and then it rolls on. That's where he built his reputation amongst the British press. Yeah. In terms of so was what that a charisma great, or was that a, I've got to do this to get to where well, I want to? It was just be another way. People. It was another way of demonstrating charisma, mm-hmm. and that was part of the reason that made him yeah, good, good part of that made mm-hmm. him so attractive to the idea of the Chelsea job. 
But whereas I think we in in England in particular retained that view of Mourinho for considerably longer than people elsewhere in Europe. You know, we still admired him for those traits long after yeah. Spain and Italy had tired of the, the other aspects of his character. It's like we still think we're a global superpower, but we're not. But the, <laughs> the thing with Mourinho is that, just quickly, Hugh... Only because we, we, we have a whole section of masks slipping to come. Okay. So Mourinho, initially, like Steve says, I think it was, it was, it was his personality, it was that sense of youthful exuberance. He, his, his charisma was based on, I am the future, I will take you to the future. I think that changed as soon as he won the Champions League with Porto. He could walk into Chelsea and say, I'm a special one, look, look what I've just done. I am a great manager. And I think he traded on that throughout his peak years. Mm-hmm. Now, I think his selling point to players, which is what we t- we're kind of initially talking about, is his past, like you say. It's th- these are the trophies I've won. And I think, I think this is a point someone else made. It might have been Ken Early, I'm not sure. That Mourinho's, that shtick can only work at clubs where they've not won anything. So Spurs, in that sense, is a perfect fit for him. Does he can go to Harry Kane? And that's why it happened. That's why basically they... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's yeah. What, I think that's what attracted yeah. Daniel Levy to him, that and his name. But he can go to those players and say, you've not won anything. I know how to win. Yeah. Do what I say and we will win. That's his, sell- his selling point. Whereas he went to Real Madrid and he said, well, you lot have kind of won pretty much everything. I've, I've won a lot of stuff too, so let's do it this way. And he took to see us and Sergio Ramos looked at him and went, no, mm-hmm. we'll do it our way, thanks. And it, didn't, it was always, he won a title there. He wasn't a failure at Real Madrid by any stretch of the imagination. But it was always destined to end badly because he, the power balance wasn't right for the so way... So charismatic to players then calling the same, shots. Same way with Inter, that side was reaching the end of it, the core of that team, people like Javier Zanetti and Marco Materazzi and people like that, were reaching the end of their careers. That a lot of them had won a lot of things. They'd won, I think, three straight Serie A titles when he went into the job. But to, to win, the, they didn't, none of them had won the European Cup, except for Samuel Leto, who just joined. So Mourinho goes in and says, I've won a European Cup. Look what I've done. You do what I say, we will I win just, the European Cup. I just Cup. wonder whether the modern player is as convinced by all this still. I, I, I'm, again, it has to be more than look at what... Ha- it ultimately is the conversations that you have one-on-one, what you do on the train... And Mourinho, yes, you can say, look at, look at my body of work, but actually it will still be, well, what are we doing today and tomorrow? Mm. That's how I would see the modern player would look at Jose Mourinho. I'm not sure they would be totally convinced by all that. I wonder if they're less convinced. Than I wonder if they, they are convinced initially and then the mask slips quicker than it used to. Yeah. So the, the, the elements of charisma that we've spoken about, um, some of them are strong. Some of them are underpinned with shaky foundations because as you were saying Chinch about Howard Kendall there were players at Everton who totally went along for the ride but you were one that didn't there were, there's another manager in your career Paul Jewell who clearly had some sort of buy-in to succeed with Wigan you say manager time, that's a bit of a stretch but I understand what you said there was a man in my career <laughs> there was a man <laughs> person you met through work <laughs> yes exactly a work he was colleague. in the same building as me yeah yeah in a different department but he he obviously had <laughs> enough charisma to succeed with Wigan and particularly with the journey that he took them on you can understand how that would be but it was mm. a charisma that clearly didn't transmit to either you or several of the players at Sheffield Wednesday or indeed anywhere since um, so there, there are clearly occasions where the mask slips because either the shtick as Rory said about Mourinho runs out it mm. runs its course now the shtick for Mourinho will last longer the more successful he is and the, the bigger distance between him and a trophy yeah. the quicker that that shtick runs out mm-hmm. so what is it like in a playing dressing room when you kind of all realise this guy's not got it or 
not got it anymore. But also, it, it has to be the development, the, the thinking of, of the modern player as well. We didn't, or I didn't think like that when I was being coached by somebody, whether it be Howard Kendall or Paul Jewell or, or Joe Royal. They were the coach, so there's a reason that they were in charge. So I get you would give yourself up, even though you don't completely agree with all of it, you give yourself up as a professional player being coached by someone. I never thought, well, hold on a minute. I'm going to look further at this and look at your career and look at how you coach. But I, I, I wasn't developed enough at that time because I, as years go by and you retire and then you look back, you, you see that world very differently. You think, well, why didn't I notice that? Why didn't I say something about that? It's because you, you didn't. But maybe the modern player is bought, again, because of their because of their schooling and what they know tactically about the game as well, that they probably think a lot more about the coaches that are in front of them than we ever did. Because it just, culturally, it wasn't like that back then. Maybe it is now. That's what I'm saying about Mourinho coming in. Okay, it's Jose Mourinho. But is Harry Kane going to be saying, well, I'm going to be in awe of you because of what you've achieved? Or I'm going to be in awe of you, what you're doing on the training ground with me today and the player that you can develop me into? And that surely it has to be the players are convinced by what the future might hold, not what is behind the coach. And they're not as convinced because, again, I think they're more... Um, I think they understand the game a lot more than we ever did. And they're involved in decision-making a lot more than, than players ever were when I was playing. So the modern player is very different. That's why I just wonder how convinced they are. When anybody walks... When Ancelotti walks through the door at Everton, are those Everton players going to be going, whoa, this is... Or are they going to say, right, show me what you've got. I think we'll, the- we'll, we'll go from today. And I'm convinced from today. And is the modern player more convinced by what Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard have done Very in their possibly, careers yes. than yes. they are by what Julian Nagelsmann has done to build his coaching reputation? Is that another way you, you can build charisma to take into a managerial yep. career from when you were a player? Yep. It's an awful lot harder for the likes of, of Tuchel and Nagelsmann two Germans that we've mentioned who have not had that success in their career as a player and are yet to have that success That's in their really, career. That's really, because most of say about these players making the transition, surely they're not going to be able to convince the modern player, but actually maybe they're more of a position to convince because they've just come off the back of their careers. People can go on YouTube and watch all the amazing goals and they, their names are still synonymous with success on the pitch. So maybe that convinces the modern player more than a Mourinho walking through but the door. Th- th- there will come a point for Lampard and Gerrard where, uh, yeah, when they, when, when they go into clubs, people will be in awe of them as for their playing reputations as they would have been at Barcelona B when Guardiola took over. 15 years go by and then but, it's their coach. They're yeah, a coach and the person pr- they are. Pretty yeah. quickly it will be what, how good are you as a coach? Yes. Because I think it's a similar right. parallel exactly. to exactly. them going into the media as you, you've always spoken about. They, yeah. they might get into the media because of who they are mm-hmm. but after a while that, that sheen will It becomes will, about the content and what you're actually saying and then and it becomes that's, about And that's why I find when I, I know I'm 50 now and I'm a lot older than when I was say 25 and play, when I sit in press conferences now and I just uh, you do really listen to what they're saying but you just kind of see what's coming off if that is what charisma is, is that that kind of wave of, of stuff coming off somebody? And it's very rare that I'll sit there and go, this guy has got, even without opening his mouth, there's clearly something happening as soon as he walked into the room. Maybe that's just my age and being a bit more cynical. I'm just less convinced. You know, 20 years ago, Jose Mourinho walked in, I'd be kind of thinking, oh my God. But now I just think, right, let, let's, see, let's see what you've got and what you say and just how convincing are you? But part of the, the conversation that we've had is, is attributing to these managers who do have charisma or are, are, are successful because 
of the kind of charisma that they have is the levels of self-awareness that they have. So there are those who walk into a press conference room and know that this doesn't matter mm. because their charisma is transmitted to their players a diff- in a yeah. different way. There will, though, there will be those who think that it's really important because they want to enhance their brand and that they think that that will help the club. And also, as Sir Alex Ferguson always used to do, transmit messages via the media to his players because yeah. he knew that the players were going to be paying attention to that. So the levels of self-awareness, Carlo Ancelotti, not only is he getting paid a lot by Everton, but he will appreciate... I imagine that there is a much higher likelihood of him going into the Everton dressing room and then responding to him mm-hmm. more than maybe two or three of his previous jobs where that sheen has rubbed off because he hasn't been quite as successful. So the levels of self-awareness and understanding where you sit in that kind of hierarchy helps you to transmit your uh, charisma. Uh, and I just want to finish off the conversation with a couple of names. First of all, Sam Allardyce, who... Uh, there was a recent piece with uh, Yuri Jorkev in The Athletic uh, where he talked about how charismatic Sam Allardyce was and how he wanted a club to help him uh, play for France in the 2002 World Cup. And Sam Allardyce, as soon as he met him, got an opportunity to transmit that charisma and got a World Cup winner in Yuri Jorkev to go and play for Bolton. He obviously managed to do that with people like JJ Kocha, uh, Ivan Campo and all that, that gl- glorious period of time, the Bolton uh, qualified for Europe, etc., etc. So Sam Allardyce clearly has a charisma even though we have criticised him a lot for a lot of other things about his managerial style and let's finish with Sean Dyche who Rory knows at first hand is a very charismatic gentleman he's an, he's an extremely charismatic uh, detective inspector um, Joe Highland is a buffalo so he gets to interject at this point uh, and it's about Sean Dyche and it's the way that we will end our conversation every so often on social media there will be posed a comedy question about Premier League managers of which the answer is invariably Sean Dyche manager most likely too have a forklift license. Manager most likely to run a flat-roofed pub. Manager most likely to be in a biker gang. Manager most likely to have erected his own conservatory and loft conversion, etc. So Joe is interested in finding out, and this is not for us necessarily right now, but for you listening. I'd be interested to hear the pod's thoughts on whether this comedy depiction has hampered Dice's chance of getting a bigger job. Also, for the sake of balance, can the pod uh, come up with any hypothetical comedy questions where the answer is not Dice? For example, he says, manager most likely to have to clean to the point of sterile his kitchen island. Answer, Eddie Howe. (laughs) (laughs) So to the listeners, we say, come up with a question. This is a good pod, by the way. This could be, we could get a pod out of this. answer that is not Sean Dice, but... His point before that was, here's the fact that Sean Dyche is considered, even though he's charismatic, a slightly comedic charismatic figure. Has that helped him or hindered him? I think this is a, that's a really good question. And I think we should do a separate podcast on it. Because... Does he play up to it a little bit? He does. And I think, I'm sure I've alluded to this before. I've definitely written about it. um, And I've certainly tweeted about it. But you remember when, before Sheffield United played Liverpool over Christmas, Chris Wilder got them to train on Stanley Park. Fine, do what you like. He's done, Chris Wilder's done a great job. As one of football's great minds, Luke Edwards of The Telegraph, uh, said, the, um, wh- whatever Chris Wilder does is right because he's done a good job, which is very much the way people talk about Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the, um, I don't buy that logic at all. If Chris Wilder shot all of his players, would that be a good decision? No. The, but it just struck me that I understand why he did it, and I, but I think the optics of something like that are dangerous because I think English managers generally, as as has just been amply proven by the fact that all of that stuff's about the fact that Sean Dyke is a working class man, basically. That's what all of that is With about. a gruff voice. With a gruff voice, and he's not handsome, and he doesn't wear a nice coat. In fact, he probably does wear no, quite no, a No, no, he wears an excellent he coat. He wears an excellent coat. No, it turns out he, very nice. But it looks like he's bought it from Burton. You're saying he's not handsome? Sean is, Sean's handsome in a way, I he's suppose. He's rugged. 
He has his appeal. He's yeah, he's not. He's not ugly. Certainly not ugly. I mean, we yeah. we, we are getting representation on Sean Dyche's good looks from the king of rugged fo- football, exactly. which is Andy Hinchcliffe. In terms so of sartorial elegance, he is held held back by the Burnley club tie that he insists on yes. wearing all of the time. Also, you know, by gin- by ginger, the which obviously around Steve is, is risky. But he is not ginger. Yes, okay, we're allowed to say that because there is a huge percentage of people with ginger hair in our lives. So yes, we are, we are well, not huge. <laughs> well, well, apart from... I mean, he's got 75% in his family, so... Uh, yeah, and in fact, three, all three of my nieces and nephews are ginger. There we so go. yes, there's a lot of gingerness so flying we, we about. So we speak from well, I mean, a position a lot, of authority. There's a lot of houses that Rory Smith is not uh, suddenly going to be welcome <laughs> to dinner for. <laughs> that's a good point. I should probably re- rescind all of that. Anyway... <laughs> Sure, but Sean Dyche, a lot of that stuff is Sean Dyche is a working class man who's not who's not as stylish and as dapper as Pep Guardiola. That's fair to say, partly as Steve says, because of the Burnley club tie. But I think the other thing that a lot of English managers do is they're presented with a choice, and this is definitely what's happened to Dyche. They are presented with a choice at some point early in their career or early in their Premier League career to either focus on the ways in which they are cutting edge and innovative or to resort to cliché and talk about industry and hard work and all that stuff. Now, all managers want industry and hard work. Pep Guardiola relies on industry and hard work. If you don't work hard enough in a Guardiola team, you do not play in a Guardiola team. But he is prepared to talk about the tactical side of it, partly because that's what interests him, and partly because it's self-aggrandisement. Invariably, all of the English managers take the path, the Allardyce path, which is to talk about... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course, you know, just got to work harder. And if I was... And, and we're currently putting Nigel Pearson in that box, yeah. and we start off this conversation by saying that he is not just doing that, mm-hmm. he is very much enhancing Watford tactically yeah. as well. So mm. if the, part of the problem is that they, they all take that route of talking about how we've got to work harder and you know, we, we run hard and the players really put a lot of effort in, partly that's they don't want to, they don't want to talk about their tactics because they don't want to give stuff away and that's fair enough. Partly I think it's an English thing of not really being good at promoting yourself because a lot of English people even now aren't. And or uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a natural there's a national tendency amongst the British to be a little bit more kind of closed in that sense, and partly I think it's because that they, they've seen their managerial icons. That's the stuff they talked about, and it holds them back. So with the Wilder thing, it made Sheffield United an amazing story, and there's some stuff that they're doing analytically and in terms of like medicine and stuff. The that sports that science is unbelievable. That is, that is incredibly advanced. Yes. That's a great story, but the story that kind of Sheffield United project is we're, we're, we worked hard we train in parks you know we, we're, we're down to earth we're not Premier League we're not these Premier League fancy dance that's fine it's working for them but you can't then complain that you're not seen as a sophisticated you can't Wilder's not done it yet but you can't then say well if I was called Wilderino I'd have got a better job <laughs> which is wrong because there's very few Brazilian managers in Europe the um, <laughs> But in the, the same way that Allardyce complained about. So Allardyce didn't... There, there was a story, there was a way that Sam Allardyce would have told his story in which he would have been a cutting-edge, innovative coach who was fascinated by data analytics, who was brilliant at the sports science stuff. He should have really sold himself... And the story about his PowerPoint presentation yeah. to the FA about wanting the first time around, I am, wanting the England job. I am the future. Sam Allardyce, was, Sam, Allardyce, Sam Allardyce saw the future, but he talked like he was from the past, which was why he never got those jobs. But we should... Just that's, draw, a, that's, a, that's a great podcast a good, uh, we, we should do that separately thank you Joe but also if you have any questions which or comedy questions that are, are answered with the answer not Sean Dyche or somebody else then that's great send them in to at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or on Facebook but the point that I was bringing up there is that Sean Dyche regardless of all those um, inhibitors and all those issues and uh, that English managers have going back to Sam Allardyce and before clearly they all have charisma because they have all achieved success to a certain degree yes. 
And that is the point that we're trying to make. Mm -hmm. At whatever level you're talking about, Tony Pulis, we could add in. You, you started the conversation uh, today talking about uh, Sheffield United getting relegated in 1994. That was Dave Bassett. Dave Bassett, yeah. another manager who obviously had charisma and was able to transmit that to his players. So there is this, uh, this through line where we can say that it is a charisma of certain types, yeah. but you it's need not, that to succeed. You can't yeah. almost, you can't do it without it. It's not it. saying charisma is Jurgen Klopp. So all the coaches that aren't Jurgen Klopp, how on earth are they being successful? They have charisma in other ways, which get players to do what they need them to do. It is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. And it will, Andy, be told in a very charismatic way. It, I don't think it will be. Um, it's, I... I I think about this this incident quite a lot and it, it it has upset me from the day it happened to today. It's something that's so cringeworthy in my own mind and, and the, the other players that were there at the time probably won't remember it but to me it, it really stuck with me as, as the, the I embarrassed myself a lot on the pitch um, but I tried not to embarrass myself too much off the pitch apart from my, my fashion faux pas. This was, again we talked about Howard Kendall and about how he liked to promote team spirit with his Chinese meals. I think we've talked about him taking all the players out for, for Chinese meals and he kind of, he wanted everyone to get to get drunk and in a way he kind of wanted the antagonist, he wanted a little bit of, of kind of niggle to kind of arise because people maybe got things off their chest. This, I think this was all part of his plan. I never saw it at the time but when you joined um, Everton or any club, I think I remember with John Terry going through this initiation where you have to sing a song in front of your new Clubmates, have you seen the John Terry one with we just stand by me with a, a guitarist that he brought in to, to accompany him? Good Lord. It was amazing. But this is what I had to do and other players have to do. Martin Keown was a, a, a new arrival at Everton as well. So we went out for this Chinese meal and what you had to do basically as part of the initiation is stand on a chair and sing to the rest of the players. But you've got to remember when I joined Everton, a lot of the established old guard were still there. The Kevin Sheedy, Kevin Ratcliffe, Neville Sa Oh, the guys that had won everything with Everton. So I was 20, 21 when I went to Everton. I wasn't the, the well-rounded person that I am today, not in terms of my body shape. I mean, mentally, I'm, I'm, I'm very well-rounded. I was, I was very nervous. I joined a club with established superstars. So for me to have to do that, it was horrible. But what happened before, which really, again, made it even harder, was Martin Keown went before me in, in the singing. You don't want to follow Martin Keown anywhere, certainly not down a dark alley. Um, but he was—he did the most amazing version of Soft Cell's Tainted Love. Really? It's hard to imagine Martin Keown, but it was absolutely incredible. Tables were being thumped and everything in appreciation of, of, uh, of, of Martin's singing. And then I had to do, because I was a big Springsteen fan, and I had to try and do, I, I, wrong song choice, I feel. Wrong song what choice, Born to Run. Right. Which again, but it was Wrong just, and as I'm saying, I can see myself, it was exactly, <laughs> Born to Lie on a Treatment Table. It was just the most horrendous experience that stayed with me for 30 long years. I, I tied a yeah, napkin around on. my head as a make makeshift bandana. I was giving it as much as I could, but it, honestly, it what right. was absolutely what was the what was the like? horrible. Not good. How did John Ebrill respond? Um, was John Ebrill there? I'm not sure John Ebrill was part was of that. Was no. sitting back down thinking really smug that, oh yeah, yeah but, went after I, me. but it wouldn't have made any difference whether I went first. It doesn't matter. It give was us just a, give us a absolute... Line. No, I don't want to. Give us a line. No, I'm not going to give I you a line. Napkin, no, because it's going to make me cry. Is that what you want? Yes. yes. It was honestly, and it really seriously affected me for a long time. So because it, it you, respect, you respected your new Everton teammates enough to go through this ordeal, but you won't do it for, had, for Hugh Rory. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I've, I've learned from the experience not to do it again. Um... 
I let, I let Bruce. I let Bruce again? do the singing. I let you, Bruce you, do the have singing. Have you sung in public since? Uh, yes, at my wedding party, I sang a Killers track. Yes, you did. Do you, were you, yes. yes, you were there. Oh yeah, we That's did invite right. you. Didn't you think we? I asked the question? Yeah. I was good, wasn't I? No. Nope. Apparently, the the GoBots, the band said I, I I could have been a singer. Which, I could have been a contender. Which Killers song? It was all these things that I've done. Yeah. And I was I was pretty amazing as Brandon Flowers. But no, again, so I, but it was just Similar the tattoos. person I was and how shy. And also a it was pl- <laughs> playing was, was bad. But having to do this, as I think about it now, it makes my palms sweat. It's horrible. But again, Martin Keogh. And every time I see Martin Keogh and I think Mark Almond. Not in that way. <laughs> but he did such... You wouldn't expect that, would you? Next time I see Keogh, I'm not Just, just say to him, does that. he remember doing that. that Everton initiation, singing... The soft, and he will he won't because remember it was what followed, amazing. I bet he does if it was that bad. It, it was. It was just. I just wanted the the, uh, did he, did the Chinese the, restaurant to swallow me. Did he do the? Um, <laughs> how did Keon do the guitar bits? I don't think he did. It was all just basically just vocal. Just, just vocal. Box. Just yeah. Box. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah. Beat, he didn't beatbox or anything. He just basically. But yeah, and that was one one man band. <laughs> 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 I didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah, yeah. in tainted lover, they're not. There's bits that you you that you would. Vocally you don't sing the whole thing. You'd right. probably sing maybe a, a chorus or two. You're not going to do it from start to finish, are you? It, well, it's just basically, you, you just do the, 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 the nub of the song. Uh, did you know that... Uh, I want to do all of it. Uh, Steve's karaoke song is also a killer song. Reason being because it's basically all just one note. Makes it nice and simple. Which, which is it, Steve? Uh, somebody told me. Somebody, yeah, that is a bit kind of, mm, yeah. Send, yeah, us, yeah, your, yeah. send us your yeah. uh, karaoke I filled the dance floor in El Bufuero with that once, yes. by the way. So that might have been no the alcohol, around. my friend. Uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our, do you want to start playing it underneath us? Here we go. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. If you haven't reached a novel, don't forget to open it, take a photo and send it to us, and Andy will sing it. No, read it. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Do we have any rights issues by playing this out? Probably not. <laughs> Thanks to Rory, Stephen and Andy, and to you all for listening uh, we'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon but that's what I meant did he do the doom doom I, no it was just the singing was just ah, incredible the choice of boom, song boom. the choice of song was uh, was inspired was, it was uh, not what I've expected was, from Keown maybe more of an Aerosmith number or, or Def Leppard was Martin Keown a new romantic um, I don't think he's ever been romantic <laughs> new or old he's quite a tough cookie wasn't he Martin and he's a nice man Martin he's Keown. a lovely 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 man strange man but a very nice man. But Tainted Love, not what I was expecting from no. him, but extraordinarily well performed. And he just basically, uh, he just dropped me right in it. Of course, it. just the phrase Tainted Love probably brings this podcast full circle, doesn't it, really?